0: This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman.
1: And a very happy Halloween weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. Great to be with you today. I want to start off by asking you a question. How are you feeling about the stock market? Are you bullish or are you bearish? Bulls and bears live side by side on Wall Street. Bulls are those who think the stock market's going to rise. Bears are people who think the stock market's going to fall. So what about you? Are you bullish or are you bearish? Well, in a recent survey published by Barron's, 50% of investment managers, 50% are bullish. Only 12% are bearish. The rest haven't made up their minds. So there is a very strong leaning toward optimism in the stock market for the coming months. In fact, less than 10% of professional managers on Wall Street see a bear market coming in the next year. By the way, how do you define a bear market? Well, there are two ways that we refer to this. Number one is a correction, meaning investors have made a mistake. They have paid too much for stocks. Prices are too high. And so we have to fix our error. We have to correct our mistake, hence a market correction. That's when the stock market falls 10%. That's a correction. A bear market is when stocks fall 20%. And only 1 out of 10 professionals on Wall Street see a bear market coming within the next several months. So, there's a lot of optimism on Wall Street. Everybody's pretty excited about what's going on with corporate profits, with sales and revenues and profits of major corporations. Oh, let's completely ignore the fact that inflation is rising dramatically. Let's ignore that tax increases are coming. Let's forget about the supply chain challenges that are interfering with the ability for companies to get the raw materials they need or their ability to ship finished products to consumers. Let's forget about all of that. Let's just focus on the fact that companies for the moment are making a lot of money and are projected to continue doing so. So given this bullishness that so many on Wall Street are feeling right now, How much of a portfolio are they generally placing into the stock market? And this has an important implication for you because you've got to answer the very same question. How much of the money you've invested have you invested in stocks as opposed to bonds or cash? That's pretty much how we demarcate portfolio management in a broad way, stocks, bonds, and cash. And according to the Barron survey, the average weighting of stocks by professional money managers on Wall Street, 68%. So put that number into context relative to your own portfolio. Even though 50% of money managers are bullish, less than 10% see a bear market coming, they have two thirds of their money in stocks. Not three fourths. Not nine tenths, two thirds. So keep that in mind. Take a look at your own portfolio. If you're in the 50, 60, 70% range, you're pretty much in sync with Wall Street. But if you're 80, 90, 100%, your bullishness might be over exuberance and you might want to think about that. And on the other side of the coin, if you are Stock allocation is only 40%, 30%, 20%. Why are you so bearish relative to what everybody else on Wall Street is thinking? You want to make sure that you have effectively figured out why your allocation is what it is. Focusing on your goals and objectives, your need for liquidity, your need for income, And working with a financial advisor who can help you sort it all out so that you can confirm that the amount of money you've placed into stocks of your overall portfolio makes sense for your circumstances and is in your best interest. And by the way, does Bitcoin belong in your portfolio? According to the Barron's survey of financial professionals, 25% now say yes. Bitcoin belongs in your portfolio. And in fact, Barron's put that on the cover of their latest issue. There it is, front and center on the cover, Bitcoin, with the headline, Bitcoin goes mainstream. The big news, of course, is that in the past two weeks, the SEC has said yes to a Bitcoin futures ETF. This is the first time you're able to engage directly in Bitcoin via an ETF. Or is that really true? And the answer is no, it's not really true. The SEC did not say yes. To a Bitcoin ETF, at least they haven't said yes yet. What they said yes to was a Bitcoin futures ETF. And Bitcoin futures are very different from Bitcoin itself. And you need to make sure you understand this in case someone recommends or suggests to you that you buy the Bitcoin futures ETF. So, what is this and, and how does it work? Well, Let's talk about it in the world of stocks, because you understand stocks probably a lot better than you understand Bitcoin. You buy a stock and you own a piece of the company. You're buying it because you're hopeful that the price of the stock will rise. You get it. You can buy or sell that stock anytime. You can add to it or subtract from it as you wish based on current market values. You know the drill. But, you know, you don't have to buy a stock to engage in the stock market. You don't have to buy a stock in order to profit from an increase in the stock's price. You can instead make a bet about what the future price of the stock is going to be, and that's called stock futures. In other words, a lot of people don't buy individual stocks. They simply make a bet on what the future price of a stock is going to be. This is the options market, and you can do this with buying futures or buying individual stock buying futures or buying options on stocks. Futures markets are separate from stock markets. In other words, you've got the Commodity Futures Options Exchange in Chicago, which is separate from the New York Stock Exchange in New York. So, sure, if you buy the futures contract on Amazon stock, you can expect that that futures contract will move similarly to, It'll move somewhat in sync to the price of Amazon stock itself, but not always. Why not? Well, it's possible that the people who are interested in buying the futures contract are thinking differently or behaving differently from people who are buying Amazon stock directly. And as a result, the prices of futures contracts can move independently from the price of the stock itself. The same thing occurs with Bitcoin and Bitcoin futures. So, if you're going to invest in a Bitcoin futures ETF, you need to recognize that you're buying a different product. You're not buying Bitcoin, you're buying futures contracts that are based on Bitcoin. Normally, you can reasonably assume that the prices will move in sync, but not always. They may move differently. So, Be aware of the distinction. And why did the SEC make that distinction? Why did they say yes to a Bitcoin futures ETF instead of just saying yes to a Bitcoin ETF itself? Regulation and jurisdiction. SEC Chair Gary Gensler isn't confident that he has regulatory authority over Bitcoin itself. In fact, the SEC has declared that Bitcoin is not a security. Well, if it's not a security, it's outside the jurisdiction of the SEC. But the futures market clearly is within the SEC's jurisdiction. So Gensler concluded they're allowed to regulate Bitcoin futures and therefore can allow a Bitcoin futures ETF. But they aren't so clear on their regulatory authority over Bitcoin itself and therefore are struggling to answer the question, can they say yes to a Bitcoin ETF itself? So if somebody recommends that you invest part of your portfolio into Bitcoin and they recommend that you do it via a Bitcoin futures ETF, you simply need to realize that a Bitcoin futures ETF is different from a Bitcoin ETF. It's different from owning Bitcoin directly. Futures contracts are expensive, annual commissions in these products are expected to be anywhere from 5 to 8% per year in addition to the expense ratio of the fund. They all have limited time frames, the contracts expire in less than a year, and as a result, you not only have to be right about the future price of Bitcoin, you have to be right about when the future price is going to reach a certain level. So, it's a different beast. You need to be aware of it, and you need to make sure you're working with a financial advisor who can give you the guidance you need to determine, A, does Bitcoin belong in your portfolio? B, how should you go about doing it? Is a Bitcoin futures ETF the right vehicle for you to use? Make sure you understand how the game works before you attempt to play. I'm Rick Edelman, and if this is all causing you to want to have a drink... Well, we're going to talk about that next. So stay with us for more here on The Rick Edelman Show. Triple Plan Rick online at rice.delman.com.
0: More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Uh, We've just finished talking about your asset allocation. How much of your money should you have in the stock market? Well, you might want to take a look at pension plans. You know, we've just finished talking about a recent survey from Barron's about Wall Street financial professionals, but what about pension plans themselves? They manage collectively trillions of dollars in assets for millions of American workers and retirees, and there are millions, tens of millions of U.S. households dependent on the pension income that they're getting from their former employers. So how are pensions managing their money? Well, back in 2001, pension funds had an average of 89% of their money in the stock market, 89%. Today, it's only 71%. Why such a significant drop in exposure to the stock market? Because pension funds are now concerned that they're not going to get returns that are high enough to meet their needs to be able to pay out all those pension benefits that they've been promising to American workers. You see, the problem today has to do with longevity, and it has to do with the number of people in the workforce relative to the number of people who have retired from the workforce. And for the first time ever, pension funds are now sending money to retirees in excess of the amount of money they're collecting from current workers. People are putting money in but not as much as the pension plans are paying out. That's a challenge if you're a pension manager. And so if you're not collecting enough money from current workers, you've got to make up the shortfall. How do you do it? By earning higher returns. And pension fund managers collectively are saying, we don't think we're going to get the returns we need from the stock market. Even though the stock market has historically been the best performing asset class in history, if you go back the past hundred years, you made more money from stocks than you did from anything else. More than you did from real estate or bonds or gold or commodities or you name it. So where are pension funds turning today if they now feel they're not going to get what they need from stocks? They don't feel they can get it from bonds, not with interest rates at 0.0. nothing. They're not excited about the real estate market with prices already at all-time highs. They certainly aren't turning to commodities like gold. So where are they turning? To alternative investments alternatives they say are investments that are different from the stock and bond markets but give them the opportunity to earn higher returns but of course you guessed it along with the effort to seek higher returns the pension funds are taking higher risks well what are these alternative investments angel investing venture capital private equity They're making investments in small companies, privately held companies, that they believe have the potential to grow much faster than the overall stock market itself. Back in 2001, pension funds on average, according to Barron's research, held 8% of their portfolios in alternative investments. Today, it's 24%. So they have removed money from the stock market in order to put it into the private equity and venture capital markets. This is going to be wonderful news for workers and pensioners if these bets turn out to be good bets. But if these investments fail, then there's going to be added pressure to pension plans and their capabilities of paying the benefits that are being promised to current and future retirees. We're going to have to see how it plays out. And by the way, is knowing that pension plans are taking risks of this sort, is that giving you confidence that they're proactively managing their accounts in a way to generate higher returns? Or is it worrying you that, hey, they're taking advantage of investment opportunities that are not available to you? They're going to get big, better returns, but you can't do it because you don't have access to angel investments, venture capital, or private equity. So if they do well, they're going to do better than you, and you're not going to be able to participate. If they do worse, well, your pension might be at risk, or the pension of your parents might be at risk. Is all of this enough to cause you to want to have a drink? Well, here's a new set of research. Here's the question I want to ask. Is having one drink a day harmful to your health? The way people answer that question is reflective of their age. 70% of people who are over the age of 65, 7 out of 10, say no having a drink a day is not harmful but 56 percent of those who are 18 to 24 say that it is so the younger americans are much more likely to say drinking at all is harmful and let's face it who drinks more young folks or older folks Well, worldwide sales of alcohol are down 6%. Even though people have been caught up with the pandemic, stuck at home with nothing to do, you'd assume there's a dramatic increase in drinking. Not worldwide. Sales down 6%. In fact, there are now five stores in New York City alone that sell alcohol-free wine, beer, and bottled drinks. The non-alcoholic drink market, we're talking about soft drinks, tea, coffee, water, is projected to be $1.6 trillion by 2025. Now, this is a... Huge shift in consumer behavior. If older Americans think drinking is okay and they feel that way more so than younger Americans, it's unlikely that the younger Americans are going to change their mind as they age. If they're not drinking beer in college, do you think they're really going to start in their 40s? I don't think so. And so as a result, we're seeing a major shift. A shift that is likely to prove to be a trend and a trend that is likely to be sustained. This is an illustration, just an illustration, of how you can't assume that the way things were is the way things are going to be. If you thought making an investment in the biggest beer companies or alcohol manufacturers is a sure way for a consistent, predictable return, well, this shows that changing demographics are forcing us to reevaluate our investment strategy and our entire philosophy about it. Make sure that your portfolio is built on the future and not on the past. Are the investments you're buying, is the investment platform you're using, predicated on a set of assumptions that are simply no longer true because of changing attitudes in society? This is why you need to make sure you're working with a financial advisor who can give you the advice you need for the future you're going to have as opposed to relying on the truisms of the past, that while they may have been effective in the 1980s and 90s and the early 2000s, aren't necessarily accurate or effective today. So make sure that you're getting the advice you need from an advisor who's serving your best interest as a fiduciary. Give us a call. Let us help you. 888-PLAN-RICK. Visit online at ricedelman.com. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Rick Edelman here. Love to bring you each week the latest and greatest in the field of exponential technologies. Engineers in Japan have now set a new record for the fastest internet speed. It's 8 million times faster than the internet you have at home. You'll be able to download with this internet speed 80,000 movies in one second. And if that doesn't sound pretty amazing, how about Star Trek's Holodeck? The University of Glasgow is on the verge of making that a reality. It makes holograms of people using aerohaptics, feelings of touch, via jets of air. When you're looking at a hologram, you can actually touch the person. You get the sensation of touch on your fingers, hands, and wrists. Say you meet a virtual avatar, you really will feel their handshake. It's the first step toward building a real holodeck. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to the truth about money. Triple eight Plan Rick online at ricedelman.com. I ain't afraid to no know.
0: For more information on what you need to do now, go to RickAdelman. That's RickAdelman. dot com.
1: Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. Thanks for hanging around this spooky Halloween weekend program. Glad you're with us. Uh, We've got some new data out of the Federal Reserve, and this data is indeed spooky, and I don't understand what to make of it. So I'm going to share the data with you. I'm not going to draw any conclusions because I don't have any, but I wonder if perhaps you might, and I'd love to hear from you if you do. The Federal Reserve data shows that the median household net worth the average amount of net worth for black college graduates in their 30s. So let's just frame that for a moment, okay? You've got a household that is led by a college graduate who's African-American. In their 30s, the median household net worth of that family is only 10% of what it is for white college graduates in their 30s. How could that be? In fact, 84%... Of college-educated black households in their 30s, 84% have student debt. Whites, similarly, only 53%. Why is it that college-educated black households have so much more student debt than similar folks who are white instead of black? Well, some of the data from the Federal Reserve shows that the incomes of households where there is a African-American college graduate their incomes have grown more slowly over the past couple of decades. Their incomes are up 7%, but for whites, their income is up 13%. So the average black household where there's a college graduate is making $76,000 a year. Similar households for whites, it's not 76 grand, it's 114 grand. Why is that? Like I said, I don't have any answers. I'm just finding the data Fascinating and, frankly, rather disturbing. A lot of governments around the country, state and local, are also acknowledging the income disparity along racial lines. They're also acknowledging the wealth disparity that exists in this country along racial lines. And there are efforts underway to improve the situation. In New York City, for example, they are now giving every kindergartner in all the public schools, $100 that's going into a college savings account. We're talking 70,000 students getting $100 each. And those children have the potential to get up to $200 more. So the New York City school system is giving each kid 100 bucks. goes into a 529 plan. If the family adds $5, they get another $25 from the city. Up to 100 bucks. So if the family puts in $20, the city will give them another $100. And then every dollar the family puts in after that, the city will match it dollar for dollar. Again, up to 100 bucks. So the city is going to give up to $300 to every kid in kindergarten in New York City. New York City is not alone. California is doing this. Colorado, Illinois, Nebraska, Maine, Pennsylvania, Nevada and the city of San Francisco. They're all providing programs that are allowing families to receive money for school children or even babies, that's Pennsylvania's program, so that the money is invested and available to them in the future to help pay for college, buy a house, start a business, or save for retirement. There is clearly a need to improve the situation to address Income and Wealth Inequality in America, and these are efforts to do it. In fact, that's similar to the proposal that I introduced a couple of years ago called RISE, Retirement Income Security for Everyone. My proposal, which is starting to get a little bit of traction in various circles, I was just at the Milken Institute this past week for their annual conference where I gave a couple of presentations on my RISE proposal. It basically would set aside $5,800 roughly for every baby in America with the money untouched until the baby reaches age 70. By that point, the account should be able to grow substantially enough to double what children would otherwise get from Social Security. You can learn more about my proposal at WeCanRise.com. There are a lot of proposals to address the issue of income and wealth inequity in America, and it is coming at a moment not too soon. Part of the challenge we have is figuring out how to pay for all of the social programs that folks want to implement, and we now are watching what's happening in Washington, D.C., where the Biden administration has proposed trillions of dollars of new spending programs to address all of the social issues that they feel are very important and coming along with it a big price tag as high as three and a half trillion dollars at the moment is seems to be whittled down to about one and a half trillion how is the biden administration proposing that we pay for all this well the obvious answer is higher taxes The debate in Washington right now is how high should those taxes go, and who exactly should those new taxes be applied to? There's conversation about a billionaire's tax, and the question is who's going to get caught in that net? Are they truly going to be only billionaires, or are they going to snare folks of lower income levels as well? We'll have to see how it plays out in the next several weeks. But there's another element to this, another angle. The Biden administration has acknowledged, as has every presidential administration prior to Joe Biden, that there's trillions of dollars in uncollected taxes every year. Why is that allowed to be? Well, we have, frankly, tax cheats. We have companies, wealthy individuals, and other folks who simply aren't paying their taxes the way they're supposed to. See, in the United States, we have the largest voluntary tax system in the world. Nowhere in human history has there ever been an experiment like the one being conducted in the United States. The government asks you, remember, we're the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And we, the people, ask each other to please Send in some of your income to the government. It's a voluntary system. You know, in a lot of other countries, in a lot of horrific regimes, the soldiers would come banging down the door and take your assets. And if you objected, they'd imprison you or kill you. That doesn't happen in the United States. We don't have such a Gestapo. Instead, The IRS simply sends you a 1040 in the mail and asks, if you don't mind, please fill it out. Send in the return along with a check to pay your taxes. That's a voluntary system. But because it's voluntary, some people choose not to participate. They either don't pay their taxes at all or they pay less than they're supposed to pay. So Joe Biden has come along and said, we're going to have banks Send to the IRS all the banking info of $600 or more so that we can determine who's got the money and we can match it up to see if they're paying their taxes correctly. $600 or more would capture the majority of U.S. households, and everybody went berserk over that acknowledgement. Let me ask you this question. Are you a tax cheat? Do you pay your taxes properly, fully, and on time? then why are you upset if the government is trying to verify that fact? In fact, here's the point. Do you ever hire a babysitter? Someone to mow your lawn? Walk your dog? You pay those people in cash? Do you issue them a 1099 at the end of the year? Do they report the cash income they got and pay their fair share of taxes on that income? You see, it's not just major corporations or billionaires who are evading, avoiding, underpaying taxes. I have a suspicion that it's a lot of ordinary folks, too, sometimes out of malice, often out of just, frankly, (laughs) not giving it much thought. Biden administration has walked away from that $600 onerous proposal. They're now suggesting the banks turn over Information of $10,000 or more in an effort to avoid the political backlash it suffered. My point is simply this. If we have any hope of collecting the tax revenue we need to pay for the social programs that the government wants to implement, we're all going to have to realize that some of our behaviors are probably going to have to change. We're going to probably have to be willing to accept Somewhat more intrusion into our lives from the government. And if that offends you, and frankly, wouldn't surprise me if it did, then we're going to have to rethink the entire idea of those social programs and our ability to pay for them. We can't have it both ways. We can't say to the government, give me the programs, and simultaneously say to the government, leave me alone, don't make me pay taxes or any more taxes than I already am. It's a push-pull, and we have to find a middle ground, or unfortunately, I think we'll get nothing accomplished except getting everybody angry. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. A plan rick rick edelmancom
0: More with the author of the New York Times bestseller, Discover the Wealth Within You, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show. Results vary, not an endorsement.
1: Welcome back to The Rick Edelman Show. You know, we've been talking a lot about Alzheimer's disease on this program, and there's an obvious reason for it. It is the nation's number one health care crisis. It is the world's number one health care crisis because this disease ignores nationality, geography, sex, age, income, and race. It attacks everybody everywhere on the planet, and it is the most expensive disease to treat for a couple of reasons. Number one, from onset of symptoms until death is an average of 12 years that Alzheimer's patients live. And for much of those 12 years, Alzheimer's patients are ambulatory. Their illness affects their mind, not their bodies. So an Alzheimer's patient is able to walk around. Uh, They can turn on a stove, they can drive a car, they can pick up a firearm, and as a result, they require 24-7 care. This makes it very expensive to treat the patient and requires substantial challenges for caregivers who routinely give up jobs, turn down promotions, squander their own vacation time dip into their own savings to provide care for loved ones. It is a huge challenge, and it's getting worse because more and more people are living longer and longer. Alzheimer's is a disease that affects folks who are older far more than it affects people who are younger. The typical onset of symptoms is in your 60s, and in fact, by age 60, your odds of getting Alzheimer's are 1 in 10. By age 80, it's 1 in 3. By age 90, it's one in two. With the advances we've been enjoying in the field of medicine, all we're doing is extending life expectancies so long, we're pretty much ensuring that either you or your spouse are going to get Alzheimer's by the time you're in your 80s or 90s. This is a huge challenge. And making it even more difficult is that at the moment, there is no diagnostic tool. There's no way to know that you're going to get Alzheimer's or that you have developed Alzheimer's. The only way to know for sure is an autopsy, which is a pretty terrible way to find out you have something. There's no treatment, there's no cure, and there's no vaccine. Alzheimer's is 100% fatal. And this is why we are so excited at the advancing technological development and research to find diagnostics treatments and cures and why so much attention was paid earlier this year when biogen had its alzheimer's drug approved for use by the fda the first new drug for alzheimer's in more than 20 years but this drug has experienced substantial controversy with many in the medical community in direct opposition to the fda's decision to approve it one big challenge Forget about the fact that there's debate over whether or not the drug works or is safe to use. Let's simply focus, since this is a show about personal finances, on the cost. The drug is $56,000 a year. Insurance companies haven't yet said whether they'll cover it. Neither has Medicare or the VA. At $56,000 a year, that's $14,000 every three months. Over the past three months that this drug has been available, how many have taken the drug? 21 patients nationally. In other words, patients and their families are saying no to this drug because the cost is so oppressive. We need a solution, but at $56,000 a year, the treatment could be considered just as bad. I'm Rick Edelman. I'll continue to give you news about Alzheimer's and our efforts to combat this dreadful disease. Watch for more content on this in coming months on the show. Time now for everybody's favorite segment of the program, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman, co-founder here at Edelman Financial Engines, degree in consumer economics and nutrition, expert in macrobiotic cooking, and the author of The Other Side of Money. Here's Jean.
2: Hello, everyone. So good to be with you today. Always wonderful to share. So, today I wanted to talk about pause. Here we go down that slope to the last two months of the year. Do you find yourself already feeling stressed? Are you holding your breath? Are you not sleeping well because you have lists circling around in your brain? Are we stopping some of our self care routines? Are we eating more sweets and skipping meals? And please step away from the Halloween candy. We're feeling this way because we want to make up for last year. We're making ourselves crazy with the details and trying to make things perfectly perfect. And if we've learned nothing from this past year and a half or more, nothing is perfect. And we have to go with the flow. So I want to ask you to be kind with ourselves and be more fluid, reinvent our gatherings, and let's not get stuck in the minute details. I have some tips to help us deal with what's coming and all of our to-do lists. So the first thing is to make a list. Prioritize. Do we need to do it now, or can we do it later? Or does it need to be done at all? Can we delegate to another member of the family? No one said that we need to do it all. And maybe if we let others step up, they can add their flair and expertise. Make sure we're making time in our calendar for ourselves. Make sure we've got good sleep. Make sure we're drinking lots of water and staying hydrated. Even though it's cold, it's especially important to stay hydrated. And a lot of times when we are feeling stressed and overwhelmed, it's actually better to eat less because when our body is processing a lot of life, It's hard to load up with a lot of food. So light meals, hearty soups are much easier on us when we are in stressful times of the year. So my word for the week is pause. And the P is for patience, especially now this time of year. We need more patience. We may have more traffic. We may be waiting in line. But I think it's really important to look at these as gifts, of moments to practice and pause and breathe and just take a moment. The A the A is to adapt. Adapt to new, adapt to different, and allow life to flow and be more creative and allow more change. And I'll tell you what, I bet that could be a lot more fun. The U is for unwind. At the end of the day, literally sit down, put your feet up, and have a cup of tea, or maybe a nice warm foot soak. We need to unwind. The S is for simple. A lot of times, less is more. Make life and make things a lot more simple. And I think we'll appreciate it. The E is for enjoy. We've all been through a lot. Nothing is as it was. I hope that we've learned to enjoy and be here and now with those around us, not lament about what was, but to be here and now and enjoy now. Please, please, please take care of us. The virus is still out there. We need strong immune systems. When we are stressed and when we are run down, we are susceptible to illness. Remember to keep our back and neck warm in this cooler weather, eat lots of veggies and warm soups and tea, and just sit around together, cuddled under a blanket and watch a movie. Life is going to be okay, but we need to take care of ourselves and not get stressed out and to pause, find the opportunity for pause in our day. Thanks, everyone. Have a beautiful week. Don't eat too much Halloween candy.
1: (laughs) That was Gene Edelman here on The Rick Edelman Show. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Always a pleasure to be with you. And if we can be of help, you know how to reach us. 888-PLAN-RICK or online at rickedelman.com. Have a happy Halloween. See you next week.
0: The Truth About Money, every weekend on The Rick Edelman Show.